0: This is Studio A from Interlaken Public Radio. Welcome to Studio A from Interlaken Public Radio. I'm Amanda Sewell. Composer Jerry Billick is one of those legendary Interlaken alums. He attended the National Music Camp in the 1940s. He's gone on to have a remarkable career as a composer, arranger, director, and scholar. If you've played in a concert band in the last 70 years, you've probably played one of Jerry's compositions or arrangements. If you've ever attended Disney on Ice, you've probably heard his arrangements and seen the results of his creative direction. I'm talking with Jerry Billick today from his home in Sarasota, Florida. Jerry, thank you so much for joining us today here at Interlochen Public Radio.
1: You're welcome. I'm happy to be on the radio.
0: So let's start. Uh, let's start near the beginning of it all. You came to Interlochen National Music Camp for the first time in 1947. How did a 13-year-old from New York wind up here in northern Michigan?
1: Well, the band director uh, had posted an advertisement about Interlochen in our band room in New Rochelle High School and i was very much taken by the beautiful picture of the lake and the pine trees and the blue skies and it happened there was quite a lovely young woman playing the harp like in the middle <laughs> of the picture and of course i was taken by the pine trees and the lake and the uh, so on
0: really the whole the whole environment
1: <laughs> was yeah. appealing actually, to actually actually it was the harp player Who I did, I never met, and she probably wasn't even there when I got there. But uh, I actually what happened, uh, So remember I was 13, so uh, hormones were raging. uh, And I talked to the band director, and it happened that the principal trumpet player of our school band was planning to go. I think he had gone before. Actually, you could look it up. His name was Freddie Breitenfeld. Uh, He was like my chaperone. On the long, long train ride that we took from New Rochelle all the way up to Interlaken, and uh, this, I had talked to the band director and to my parents, and they thought it might be good because I wasn't good at anything except music. <laughs> I was no, I was terrible. I was horrible at sports, not good at anything really. Uh, but I did love music, and I would sit for hours. Uh, playing, improvising on the piano. Uh, And so they thought it might be useful. Maybe I would get some discipline or something. Yeah,
0: well, I think they were right, because I'm looking, um, I'm holding in my hands right here, this is the score of um, the the first piece you ever wrote, right? And you wrote it here at Interlaken that first summer in 1947. But you'd never composed a piece before. And I'm looking at, let's see, this is for... Flute, oboe, clarinet, bassoon, trumpet, horn, trombone, percussion, uh, violins, cellos, bass. You forgot the viola, there, sir. <laughs> um,
1: I, I didn't. Wait, in fact, it's a very funny story. I didn't forget it. the uh, The piece, as you probably know, was recorded by an orchestra that summer, and at the recording session, or as a broadcast, I guess. Uh, the orchestra, you know, the conductor said uh, it was Bill Boyer. He said, Jerry, uh, the viola players are looking for their part. And I said, I, I said, remember, I was 13. I said, I don't, I didn't feel the color of the viola fit with what I was writing. <laughs> it was a total lie because I had no idea how to write something in alto Club.
0: That's what I was wondering. <laughs>
1: but that's what I said I told you I wasn't a very good kid at that time so.
0: I, you know I was playing through this uh, through the score earlier just to, to play parts of it and I was like oh thank god there's no violas because I can't read out <laughs> to save my life either I, I'm going to refer here to a quote that you gave to Seventeen Magazine in the summer of 1947. They were at camp doing a profile. You're actually the lead the lead quote in their article, and you told them you ended up in the music theory class because you had an opening at 3.30 in the afternoon and, and needed to put something in
1: there. <laughs> right. Uh, I did say that. That, by the way, was another lie. <laughs> Uh, I was. All, I told you I was awful, and you, know, you can edit this out if you want. <laughs> this is what happened. Um, that year was the first year Interlochen had an intermediate division. Uh, prior to that time, I would have been in the junior division in the you know the upper cabin of the junior division, and they decided to start a middle school division that year, 1947. Uh, and actually, we were in the oldest cabin of that division also. And so they were making up things as the summer went along. And I guess a couple of weeks in, they announced they were going to give a composition class. And I was, you know, I was really looking for harp players. I wasn't really thinking (laughs) about uh, composition, but I have a hobby, had a hobby then. And I still have it amazingly enough. I am a total map freak and we've, over the years have traveled all over the world and have this peculiar quality of a photographic memory of every place I've ever been. And I remember maps and they said, so we're gonna have this composition class, beginning composition class in building I-10 in the afternoon, just what it said in that article. Um, and then I said to myself, I-10, That's a building in intermediate girls camp. And I remember (laughs) that that building is right next to the intermediate girls tennis courts. And I said, all the girls at can wear knickers, but they don't wear knickers when they're playing tennis. (laughs) So I think I will take this class. And I took the class, and I got a seat right next to the window. I don't think I-10 is there anymore, and I know the tennis courts aren't there anymore. It's just an open space. Uh, and I sat looking out the window, basically, for the first few days, at least. So that, that's how it really happened. Uh, it was The attraction was where the class was as opposed to what the class was. Not awful. I'm I'm ruining my image.
0: <laughs> it sounds uh, it sounds pretty expected for for a teenage boy, and I'm sure you're not the first teenager to come to camp at Interlochen, uh, who wound up in a class because they were uh, in hot pursuit of something other than knowledge. Yes. Um, but at some point you started paying attention because you learned how to compose.
1: This is where the magic of Interlochen uh, took hold. Um. They took us, the intermediate boys, to a concert in the bowl. Of course, there was no Kresge then. And the concert was Mozart Requiem. It was, uh, it was called a festival choir then, which was everybody who wanted to sing uh, was conducted by Maynard Klein. And about halfway through, they were doing a section of the Requiem called the Recordare. And I don't, I can't really tell you why or how it happened, but I had a metamorphosis. I was completely carried away by the music. Physically, I don't, you know, it's like I started an out-of-body experience by the beauty of the music. Um, and I, I can't describe it. And of course, it was a long time ago. But I was stunned by how it had affected me. That and the beauty of being in the bowl under the pine trees and the sun going down over the lake, we call it Wabakoneta then, I don't know what it's called now. But um, it, was, it was a transformative experience. And I said, if Mozart could do to someone what he just did to me, I am gonna spend the rest of my life trying to do that to other people because it was not only transformative, but it was so elevating and so ennobling and so, I can't, soulful, I guess you would call it. And at that moment, as you said, the next day in, in class, I started writing. And I had, my focus was because it, it changed my whole image of Interlaken at that point. And I said, this, this place is magical. Never mind the knickers, you know, in yeah. the tennis courts. The
0: girls are fine, uh, but... <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah, no, there's something else going on here. You know, you walk through and you hear the, everyone practicing and all the different groups going. Um, and it was, it completely enveloped me. And as you probably know, I mean, I've been entranced with and since. So that's a lot of years to be entranced. Um, but I sat down into class and I said, I've got to, I've got to try to do this. This is at 13. And that's why it was called the and Suite because what I decided to do, I would try to compose a musical history of that piece of land, not necessarily Interlochen, but that, that exact spot where this magic happened. It was, I don't know if that makes sense, but it's very spiritual um, in me. I, and it was a transformation that never left that from that moment at the Mozart when I went home I immediately ran out and bought the album of the Requiem and that time was a bunch of big 78 12-inch records and I I wore them out listening to them I couldn't get over the beauty I know my little piece didn't quite come up to par (laughs) but uh, it was the idea of trying and that has driven me ever since I that's never nothing has changed since then.
0: And it's just, it's incredible looking at this score. I mean, it is, it's in pencil. It's clearly a 13-year-old boy's handwriting. Uh, <laughs> that hasn't improved,
1: by the oh, yeah. way. I could show you one I did last year. Yeah. I thought a week ago for the Michigan Marching Band, it looks the same. And
0: it, I mean, it's just, it's just incredible. So are you, are you one who, like, do you write at the piano? Do you hear it in your head and then and then put it on paper? Like, what's your what's your process like?
1: The process uh, has always been: I sit at the piano, and my brain tells my fingers what to do. And when I hear what my fingers are doing, if it sounds good, then I write it down. Uh, And in all the years of being a professional composer and arranger, I have never gone digital. Uh, As I told you, I just uh, did some arrangements for the Michigan Marching Band. They're all written out by hand, first uh, with a ballpoint pen on a piece of scrap paper, and then on a, a score. And then they mess around with it on the computer and do all kinds of things. But I... In all my professional work and everything, that's the way I do it. Because I felt the physical process of writing is also a filtering process. And something doesn't look right. Something, as you're looking at the notes, you say, what is that done? you're hearing the sounds as you're reading the music that you're writing and you realize, no, no, this could be better. So you get a second chance, kind of. Uh, and that's, I've always been very old fashioned that way. And yeah. I love it.
0: <laughs> now, I want to go back to the girls for a second here because oh. um, I'm looking at a photo of you from that first summer at camp of 47. Uh, it's a photo that was in Seventeen Magazine. You were working on the score of of this piece of the and Suite, and you're wearing a name badge, but it's not your name badge. It looks like it says Suzanne Livingston.
1: You're kidding. <laughs> Yeah, she was my, she was the principal clarinet in the intermediate band. She's from, or was, from Coshocton, Ohio. I remember her well. It was my, really my first flame ever. <laughs> and that's another thing that happened at Unilakhin. Whether it was me or the place or something, uh, I was very bashful in New Rochelle. Um, I don't know what, what the difference was, but I, I was not so bashful at all. She was a lovely person. Uh, I had always vowed that I would go to Koshopton and find her, but the next year I found someone else who was very nice <laughs> and it, and so on and so on for eight years. So, uh,
0: was there ever a harp player, or was she just remained sort of? No,
1: the... let's see. She was clarinet. And there was a saxophone player, a lot of different pianists. My biggest flame was a really lovely woman, and she in the older when I was at university who was a marvelous piano player and uh, worked in the food line (laughs) I've
0: got to say so many people talk about how they came to Interlochen and they were such a nerd back at home they were such a geek they were so isolated but at Interlochen that was where they got their first friends or their first boyfriend or girlfriend and where they really like oh I was such a nerd at home but at Interlochen I was actually cool
1: yeah I'm sure uh and it's Part of it is, I must say, a Midwestern atmosphere or whatever. Uh, I, Even though I was born and raised in the suburbs of New York, I never, just what you were saying, I never felt comfortable. Um, and I came to Michigan, you know, enrolled in Michigan, because uh, Maynard Klein, this gentleman who conducted the Mozart record, was the choral director here at Interlochen, at uh, Michigan, and I enrolled in music ed, general music ed, specifically to become a high school choir director. That was my aim. And the whole marching band thing is another story, a very funny one, but it it was not my objective when I went to, I didn't even know anything about the marching band.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask about that because then you ended up at the University of Michigan, But yeah, you wound up being the chief composer and arranger for the U of M marching band. And that was with Ravelli, right?
1: Yes, yes. I didn't, as I said, I didn't know who he was. I had been in a high school band. And at that time, band was a requirement for my curriculum, uh, music ed. Um, And I remember going in to play for him. And he was a terror. He was absolutely terrifying. I picked up and played the first note. And before I had finished the note, he says, you, you like that talent? And I was, huh, what? No, no. You know, and I was so scared. Um, but I had to be in the band. And uh, he, was, he was really terrifying. The irony is that I ended up essentially becoming his surrogate son. He never had a son. And over the years, we became so close that we actually became like family. Um, and I learned to respect him. A lot of, of the people in Michigan could never get over his toughness, but he wasn't, it wasn't unreasonable. He was totally dedicated to making each, each of his students uh, excel to the absolute limit uh, of their ability. And it certainly worked for me and many others, you know, in those years. Michigan was turning out band directors and music teachers of the highest caliber. And as you probably know, at that time, Interlaken was an adjunct of the university. So it was all connected. And you could just start an intermediate and would go all the way through uh, and then become a professional. And it was all based on this Midwestern concept of you are all essentially fellow artists making something beautiful. So there was no, well, I'm better on, you know, the first chair, not the first chair and all this kind of stuff. Uh, And ironically, when I was in high school, uh, I didn't know the concertmaster of the National High School Orchestra at all until I got to college. And then I met him and we became the best of friends. In fact, he had me join his fraternity and um, he... We became very close friends, played tennis. We both ended up in Sarasota in the winter. (laughs) Um, And he, my father was a doctor, and my father actually helped him get into medical school and become a very successful um, doctor himself. And he was a concertmaster. But the point was, you know, he was not conceited like, I'm the concertmaster, any of that kind of stuff. And that is part of the attraction of interlock. And there's this... Fellowship between every person there. And I love it. I love it.
0: Speaking of other people who, who were at Interlochen and then went to U of M, George Crum, the Pulitzer Prize winning composer, one of the uh, most iconic composers, I suppose, of, of the second half of the 20th century, present company excluded. Um, you folks were, you, you and George Crumb were there at the same time in 47. I have a program of a concert that had your Interlochen suite on it and then several of his pieces. It's just amazing to me, like this this moment in history that you you two were there together and you just never know what, what'll happen at Interlochen. Well,
1: I mean, it shouldn't be because that's the way interlocking was. Uh, it was a magnet. And at that time, it was really exclusive. There was no place in the world like interlocking. And that all was strictly on the hands of Joseph Maddie, who his concept was to bring, and that's why Rubelli kind of matched that. His Maddie's concept was bring the pleasure of music making to as many people as possible, and that's why he the high school orchestra was massive. There weren't a better orchestra and a worse orchestra, and a better band than were. All of that kind of... And Rivelli did the same thing. And I was terrible, but I was in the band and in the concert band. It was only... And everyone, you know, he had... It was a huge band, 70 or 80 people, and it was not exclusive. And I was very upset in later years when people started adopting Wind Ensemble and the Smallness and the, the Super. And I'm not so happy about the interlocking thing, frankly, about having a second orchestra, got kind of like a JV. With Maddie, there was no JV. You know, I was way down in the trombone section, but I, I have at home, I can't believe it. And I actually made principal trombone one year, I think my senior high school year. Um, and that's all to the credit of Interland. In other words, you're motivated, but to move up. And of course, as you know, the seating is set up by your fellow musicians. It's not set up by the teachers or the conductor. I don't know. Do they still do that? No, they got rid know, of that,
0: they, I don't know, 15 or 20 pox years on ago. Them. I, well, yeah. pox on them. Well, on them. Well, you said that it was a funny story how you ended up composing for the band at U of M. How did that, how did you go from getting yelled at with the first note out of your horn? Well, to... <laughs>
1: the, uh, as I said, I was in there's it, a kind of funny stories here, the whole Michigan thing, as I said, I went there because Maynard Klein was there and the same thing. took this long train ride from New Rochelle for the first day and got off at the Ann Arbor railroad station and went to the marching band and all this kind of stuff. And then uh, at orientation, you're both on the school of music. You're supposed to go in and take a piano placement exam, especially in general ed, because you have to be able to play the piano for a choir. And so I went in, and um, they asked me to play, read some music, and I could sight read uh, and to transpose, and I knew how to transpose on the piano, so I played it in another key, and I did various things, and they threw up other music. Uh, and the reason I could do that is because I never had a piano lesson, and so I my fingers went wherever they wanted to. I knew nothing about piano, and I'll tell you that story in a minute. But anyhow... I took this placement test, and then the guy said at the end, he said, okay, Jerry, you're free to graduate. And I said, (laughs) no, no. I said, this is my first day here. He said, well, you just passed your piano proficiency. Oh, I thought it was piano placement. I had gone into the wrong room and and passed the senior piano proficiency. And so, you know, they put me in a, with a very good teacher because they figured I could do all this stuff. And then after the first lesson, the teacher realized I had no skill at all. It was total fakery. <laughs> um, that I, I I could play the ritual fire dance and all these complicated pieces, but all wrong. <laughs> and so the whole first year uh, was terrible. And then the jury at the end of the first year, Uh, I had taken me down from the Ritual Fire Dance to a Haydn children's sonata.
0: There
1: you go. That's supposed to finger it. And I'm playing my final joy. And I was saying to myself, something doesn't sound right. I don't know what's going on, but I kept playing. And I really had, you know what an Alberti bass is? It's it's where the left hand outlines a chord. And somehow my left hand had skipped a bar. And I was playing the A major chord against the D major melody, and then the D major chord in the next measure against the A major melody. What my left hand had skipped a bar, and it was so formulaic that I couldn't I couldn't stop either hand from doing. So I failed.
0: Oh no!
1: <laughs> and it was and actually it was a belly who said you better change curriculum because you're not going to pass. You'll never pass your piano proficiency if you have to play the right way. And he suggested I change into instrumental music education. And he said, then you can, you know, you can go someplace and still get a choir. He was very good. But the problem was, the second by the second year in the band, in marching band, I was a 17th trombone. That's how good I was <laughs> out of 18. Out
0: of 18, okay. I
1: wasn't last. Right. I was next to last. And as the year went along, the second year, I realized every time he would point to me or ask me to play something, he would call me Dave Green. And I said to myself, I'm not Dave Green. Dave Green is the 16th trombone. Why does he keep calling me Dave Green? He doesn't even know who I am. And one day, Ravelli says, our arranger who used to arrange for the band is now in the Air Force band. Is anybody interested in doing any arrangements and as you know i knew how to transpose because i had done that for quite a long time but i said i better i better make some brownie points here and they, because rebellion controls what kind of job you get so i thought well you know maybe he'll he'll at least know my name if i write because it'll be on the arrangement and that's how that started i volunteered Uh, I think my first arrangement was Popeye the Sailor Man. I don't remember. (laughs) The the one that worked was my second arrangement, which was Brazil, and it worked very well. And from then on, you know, that I was very involved with that. But it started, it was a desperation move um, so he would get to know me. And And I must say, I have to give credit. From that day on, from the day I did my first arrangement, he would look at the score and he would say, why'd you do that? And that went on until the last arrangement I did for him in 1970 something. He was uncanny that he could find the tiniest flaw in getting the best possible sound. Now he couldn't arrange very well himself. He did one arrangement, it was awful, but but he had this uncanny knack for looking at the score and, and saying, why did you do that? He didn't say, you know, and then that translated as I wrote and read, became more and more precise uh, and was able to use the instruments in such a way that they reinforced each other, particularly in the marching band, because you're outdoors, there's no reverberation. And the techniques that we worked out produced a sound that was really unique. No other band had it because we were using acoustics to amplify the sound of the band, not amplifiers, but the natural harmonic relationships of pitches and the sound got huge. And we want, I mean, we got a standing ovation to, it was funny. We were doing a hi-fi show and, and we used, I used Bach, Toccata and, Fugue, and D minor because we built a stereo system on our formation. And we said, well, first You know, the stereo system has tweeters to play the high notes. (laughs) Play the high notes. And then we have mid-range speaker to play the low notes. And then we have woofers to play the bass notes. And then it built up this pyramid, which is in the toccata. And as the pyramid ended, it went right to the end of the toccata, Rivelli turned around we were playing, I was out on the field, the stadium was screaming. They were standing up and screaming. It was like the walls of Jericho. The sound, something happened acoustically and they were just screaming and yelling. And Ravelli turned around he thought they were passing some woman up the stands. That's what they used to do and stuff like that. They were just screaming and yelling at the band, at the sound. Uh, and it was an amazing, an amazing thing. And we spent years refining that, uh, sound. And, uh, it was basically his concept of making every note count, every note count. And, uh, it really works outside. You know, it's a real challenge. There's no reverberation to bounce. Nothing bounces back. So you have to make your own. You have to get the people to listen. Anyhow, that's how that happened.
0: You wrote one of your first big hits uh, during this era, too, The Block M March.
1: Yeah, it's very popular. Um, I wrote it as a senior, in my senior year. In the last year, I just felt I had to do a musical thank you for all that had transpired. Because uh, from 1947 on, I had basically become a Midwesterner. And still am. And we live in Ann Arbor half the year. And th- I just, I wrote it just for that reason. Uh, and it became very popular. It was voted one of the 100 best marches. And that's really nice, you know. And it is played. And it's fun to hear them It's on YouTube, the different bands. Uh, and then in Japan, I somewhat, of course, I couldn't read it. But they someone had done this whole musical analysis of the piece. But it's all in Japanese. So I don't um, it could be dirty jokes for all. <laughs> <I'm
0: sure. laughs> well, Jerry, in your professional career, you've written a lot of pieces for concert band, and it's interesting because that—that's a type of ensemble that really only sort of came to prominence in the U.S. like during your lifetime. I mean, Fred Finell and the Eastman Wind Ensemble in the fifties—that it was really becoming an American thing. Um, I and I'm curious what. What a couple of your favorite pieces are that you've written for wind band, Um, or least favorite?
1: No, least favorite. (laughs) I I don't know least. (laughs) No, no. I must say, one thing I learned, I guess, from Maddie, there can't be a least favorite. You can't approach a piece as a throwaway. You can't approach it as a performer, and certainly not as a composer. And I take. Every, I don't think I ever wrote something that I wasn't really invested in, almost insanely, that it had to work, it had to move people like the Mozart Requiem did. I don't ever think I come even within a universe of Mozart, but I just, that has been my objective in every arrangement, in every piece I've written. Uh, Some have worked better and there are moments, like I did a piece called, uh, in nineteen you know, seventies, late 60s or 70s, called Shenandoah. It was a setting of Shenandoah, and it begins with a sermon about protecting the environment, which was pretty early for that. And um, it begins very softly, and then it gets totally grotesque as the environment is despoiled, and then it, it ends, you know softly again and and i have always found that it's one of my favorites because it has a message and i and i every one of my pieces i try to have a message and i think a lot of them are not that successful i'll be very frank uh it requires a great emotional uh involvement on the part of the conductor and the performers and my feeling at, at i as i hear a lot of band concerts is it's mostly about percussion and colors and loud and soft and and you don't hear the real musical elements that are supposed to work you don't hear them working i don't hear them working uh, and in my pieces you have to be sensitive to uh, or the piece of a disaster. I mean, it, what, I'm not after effects or, or things. I'm really after an emotional thing. I did a piece called 12 Days of Christmas, which is 12 variations. Like any set of variations, there's a larger pattern over the smaller patterns, and you have to really be sensitive. And and it requires from the band, which bands, a lot of band directors don't really do what Revelli did. I mean, he... It was about music. Now, for instance, bands very seldom play transcriptions of orchestra works now. And Revelli always programmed them. And the reason he did was to expose the musicians to the inherent, the inherent quality of those great composers, whether Wagner or Tchaikovsky or what it was. And it was very, here's a very interesting story. At, at, after Revelli had retired and he was quite elderly, I went to him, and I, as I said, we had this very warm, uh, almost familiar relationship. And I said, you know, and I still call him Dr. Ravelli. I never called him Bill. I said, you know, I've done a thousand arrangements. I said, I've never done one for you specifically. I said, I want to do one arrangement or composition specifically for you. What would you like? And he said, you know, what I would really like you to do is an arrangement of the music from La Boheme, Genie's La Boheme. I thought, oh, my God, you know, the An band. opera. Yeah, an <laughs> opera. Nobody's going to sing. Um, he says, it's my absolute favorite piece in the whole world. So I actually was able to get permission from Ricordi, which is amazing because they're a very tough publisher. And I, they said, for veli you can do this and they published it uh and i was very pleased because he heard it very shortly before he passed away and he was very moved it was a very good performance uh and it's only a transcription so it's not there's not much i could do except try to capture the beauty uh that was inherent in the music it was very tough um but that's what it's always been about for me so that's a favorite. Uh, I have a piece now that I'm going to start trying to promote. I wrote it originally for band. It was a a commission from Wayne State University called Independence, which is a setting of the Declaration of Independence for chorus and narrator and band, but I also done it for orchestra. Um, and I'm really proud of that because of how it it's the whole story. I actually sat in the University of Michigan Library with the actual digest of the parliamentary records from Britain from the 1770s. I literally was copying the minutes of the parliamentary meetings and what they were saying about these ruffians in the colonies and all <laughs> that. It was really, it's all in there, really good stuff. So that's one of my favorites. You know, I, the ones that, that seem to say the most emotionally are my favorite. I don't by any way consider them in terms of my skill. It's just what I have been, if I've been able, lucky enough to capture the essence, that's, you know.
0: I gotta say one thing that I really admire about your pieces is you just, you have this like mastery of different styles and time periods and and you can take a piece or a theme or a melody we know, and just completely spin it into another time period or or genre, and like the variations on a college song that you did with the Victor's. I I laugh and I cry when I listen to it because I, it's just <laughs> so brilliant how it's like. And now we're on Beethoven, and now we're in the Rite of Spring, and and yet the Victor's is there the whole time. Um, the American variations too with the with Barbara Al. It's just. That's something that just strikes me so much. Um, it's probably because I'm a musicologist, so I <laughs> yeah. so I really appreciate all the the historical mastery of that. It, is that does that come organically to you? Like do you think, okay, now we need a now we need a Beethovenian moment here. now's you know, now is a now is a samba or like when when those ideas are coming in with those variations and themes like that?
1: No, uh, it actually is fairly easy because it's a matter of, of artistic respect, whether it's a composer or whether it's folk music like American Variations. It's understanding that every music that originates, originates from somebody's soul it originates way inside. And so, for instance, the Variations Being a composer, I know exactly what, when I heard the Mozart Requiem, I mean, it it said, this idiot, whatever you know, if you watch Amadeus or however, whatever he really was, inside there was a magic in his soul. He could, and it was funny, it happens to be the record the way the melodies sit up on top of each other, but he, there is some magic inside a creative magic. And then the same thing is true with the folk songs that, each ethnic group, which are in that piece are portrayed, they there is a magic, a creative magic, embedded in their souls as a, as an ethnicity. Every every single ethnicity, you know, we spent many years working in Japan on the ice show and and understanding their music and understanding, you know, how they approach it. That that's what's so great, and interlocking. That's what happened after it. it it bypasses everybody's surface, goes through the skin, past the bones, in past the blood vessels into the very inside of you. That's what happened when I heard the Requiem. And it's what happened to all the people who were there who keep coming back. It's, it's an, an amazing, enveloping, a wondrous envelopment that happens. And so when I'm writing, it's particularly that kind of thing, or arranging like in the Civil War fantasy or anything, I am thinking what those people were feeling as I'm taking all of those themes from the Civil War period and the battle, and then the battle hymn of the Republic at the end of that, <clears throat> which to me signified hope, that, You know that people down deep, they want peace, they want unity way down deep some have problems but i think if you could peel away everything that's what you would get and that's what i try to capture and i don't always do it i'm not that good but but that's what my objective is
0: well jerry you mentioned the ice show that's meaning disney on ice right i mean you worked for disney on ice for for a number of years as a artistic director how did you how did you end up in that role
1: well, that's a good story. I um, I went, uh, my best friend from high school became a very, that director of the Ed Sullivan Show, moved out to Hollywood, became a very successful television producer, and we went out. Michigan finally won a Rose Bowl trip, I don't know how many years after I was there, and I did a show f- for them, and I met my friend again, John, and... Uh, he said, you don't belong Man, You should come out here. You're so creative, blah, 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 blah. Um, and so I decided to do that, uh, to to try my luck out there. Um, and he said, I'm going to set you up with these guys who write music for television, and you, you would be unnatural. You'd be so good. He gave me the address of these guys. He, who wrote, They were contracted to be the composers for a lot of the series at that time. I walked in, I said... Hi, so and so sent me, and the guy said, "No, he didn't send you. I didn't hear from him." Oh no! I said, "No, he told." I said, "He told me. He said me told me to come." He says, "Well, I know him that well, and that's so typically him. I know you're telling the truth. Come on in." <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and so uh, he gave me some work, and I started doing that. Um the first cue I ever did for Charlie's Angels was an absolute disaster, and I don't want to talk about it. I thought my musical career was over, but by a miracle, the second cue I did worked perfectly, so I was able to keep going. But anyhow, with John, he hired me to do uh, the music for a TV special about uh, Ringling Brothers Circus. And I did this for a couple of years, and then the people who own Ringling Brothers bought an ice show called uh, Ice Follies and Holiday on Ice. And for it's a very funny story, but too long to tell. But uh, they had me do the music for that, and it was a, the show was a disaster, although the music worked. And then the <laughs> next year, they made a deal with Disney to do an ice show where Disney characters skated. Uh, and they asked me to do the music for that show, and so they sent. We went to a meeting in the Beverly Wilshire Hotel, and they showed what the show was going to be, and they asked what I thought of it. And I said, Could, "We have a meeting. I know we have a meeting tomorrow. You mind if I sleep on this? Because uh, I I'd like to think about it." And yeah, all right, all right. So I slept on and I spoke to the skating director and I said, I, I want to take a big chance. That could be the end of our whole career in Hollywood. I want to shoot down the entire concept and offer something different. So we went back, he agreed. And then we went back the next day and I did that. I said, this is all wrong. I said, if you're doing a show with Walt Disney characters like Mickey Mouse, I said, children are going to come, and they're going to expect a story. They're not going to expect to see Mickey Mouse doing axles and toe loops. They want some, and I said, you've got all of these numbers that the costume designer had planned. The whole show was based on a purple number and a black and white number and a blue number. And I said, "It it was like the old ice show where the people just skated. And I said, I would like to take all those numbers, and I'll put together a story that connects them like um, Pinocchio gets lost in Disneyland and everyone's looking for him and they go to all the different lands and they go to a purple land and a blue land and a black and white land and they meet Disney characters, but there'll be a story. They'll keep looking for Pinocchio and at the end they'll find him and the kids will be happy. And at first they were very reluctant, but the uh, son of the owner said, I think we should try it. And then, you know, what happened? It was it <laughs> was kind of funny because the concessionaire, you know, normally in the circus and ice shows, the kids are running up and down aisle buying candy and souvenirs and stuff like that. And the people selling them were furious at the opening Disney show. They said, nobody's buying anything. They're just sitting in their seats watching. And the producer said, just wait till intermission and just go up and stand in the hall at intermission. And... <laughs> You know, they all came flying out, buying things. And another thing I feel very proud of is that I changed the entire concept of arena construction. Did you know that?
0: I did not, but I would love to hear about it.
1: (laughs) Well, up till the time of the first Disney ice show, all of the arenas, as you know, were designed basically for basketball, hockey, and boxing. And the circus would come in once in a while. At the uh, Disney on ice, so the pe- the kids were fascinated by the story from Disney one, from the very first thing. But in a mission, you had 8,000 people, mothers and children running up to go to the bathroom. But there were only men's rooms. They had like one, one ladies room in the entire arena. So what happened, of course, the mothers just invaded the men's. They weren't gonna, you know, the lines were going halfway around the hallway. Uh, and from that time on, every arena that was built was redesigned to have at least as many women's rooms as men's rooms, or more, because basically because of Disney on Ice. And so I feel personally responsible for that, and I take credit for them.
0: <laughs> well, I think all the people going to Taylor Swift concerts and Beyonce concerts and stadiums, thank you
1: <laughs> for yes. that
0: innovation yes. too.
1: But. It all began with Disney on Ice. So,
0: Now, the music for Disney on Ice, were you arranging existing Disney music or were you writing new music or was it... Both. I'm thinking of we, figure skating where every other person does bolero and, you know, the potsy and dances and, you know, classical hits too.
1: From the first... Well, the first show was so over-designed by the costume design, I basically had to go and make everything fit. But from the second show on, uh, I was allowed to essentially write an an original story. In other words, instead of me fitting the story to the costumes, we switched it around, and they they put all of the... I mean, I worked it out, but they put all the production numbers as part of a story. So (laughs) the second show was called The Great Ice Odyssey, and the... um, it was about this the evil queen maleficent didn't like people to be happy and she captured cinderella and put her in an ice block and all that so i i created a whole cool thing and i have to say that the producer of the show was incredibly supportive creator i mean i was going crazy and he loved it and he knew he realized it was bringing people in and so you know we kept this up for over 30 years Uh, And each show became more successful than than the other as we gave more and more original. So for the first few shows were just completely made up. And then we decided if we can do stories, why not do a real story? And we set Snow White to put it on ice. Yeah, snow. Snow, yeah. And of course, that's why Frozen was such a big success (laughs) on the ice. Of but Snow, Snow White, see, the secret of Disney's movies is their songs are marvelous. They have really good songs. So for an arranger, for me, I can, you can make them and build them up and build them up. Like in when we did Aladdin, I got this idea, you know, have the genie, of course, and the top song in that show for the genie is you never had a friend like me. So I had this thing where the genie says, he cues the song, never had a friend like me. And he thinks, you know, never, 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 you know, never, never, never. And as he's skating down the ice, he's followed by 28 other genies, all all identical. And to do that live, you know, that's you could do that on a screen, you know, yeah, digitally. Yeah. and all, but we're doing it all live, all live, all skating. So they, you know, they do the numbers and so it was really fun. Um So we, and because their films all had such good music, basically it was just a matter of arranging them, extending them and stuff like that. Although I did write a couple of original songs. We did Snow White twice. When we did the second Snow White, I decided we're going to introduce the seven dwarfs individually. And I wrote a song called One Little Dwarf in the Forest. And then one by one, the dwarfs came out and each one got an applause. You know, we made a big thing and, and it was nice because we were using the walk-around costumes from the Disney parks and they just cut a hole in the, in the feet for the ice skating <laughs> blades. But the, to imagine these kids skating in those costumes, is like when we did Beauty and the Beast, and the guy who played the Beast, that costume weighed 85 pounds, the costume alone. And here he was doing jumps and leaps and all this and, amazing... Oh they were the same thing with the genie, you know, yeah. all these... They were so dedicated. It was interesting. And of course, the other problem was these are all athletes. The skaters are athletes. So all of them, I had to teach them how to act. And of course, the pantomime. One, when they were live, like the princesses and princesses without costumes on, they had to lip sync because the audience had to believe they were talking. And they did. So while they're skating and doing their jumps and they're singing and moving their mouths and lip syncing... And then the the people and the characters, Mickey and Minnie and Donald, they have these big fiberglass heads on. They had to convince the audience that they were talking. And so I showed them how to move their heads and their arms and stuff like that. What was interesting, they were so dedicated that they picked it up. And, you know, the shows, one of the shows just closed last year after, I think, 19 years running the same show. And... They did it every performance, 13 shows a week. They were so honest. They knew that for each show, it was the opening night for those people, you know, the audience. And there's like 15,000 people out there. And I told them, you have to play for the person in the last row, you know, forget the people in the front. That's the one this means the most to, and they do it. They would project and and it was marvelous. It's still great. And and The producers were so supportive and and it was a wonderful experience, especially knowing that I remember I was at a show fixing something in Oakland, California, and the arena is connected to the BART system by this long glass bridge. And I was parking the car outside the arena in the back. And you could see on this glass bridge, the silhouettes of all the families going towards the arena from the subway station uh, but the bar station and the feeling i had that i know that every one of those silhouettes is going to come away so happy at the end and, you know there was a lot of in show business you never know but we knew knew that what we were doing we're giving them a genuine experience and i you know i've mentioned that earlier from the beginning of this is what i learned at interlocking the, the the essential the need for this absolute honesty uh, and for the receiver, that to be thinking about the receiver and forget the creative. And that's that's why Mozart was Mozart, because he was writing for the listener, not for him. Or all the great composers, every great composer, that's their secret. if They're thinking about it. And when I, you ask me about way back sitting, you know, and writing at the piano, and I'm thinking, what? That person sitting in the audience someplace, what, what experience are they going to have? And is this note the right note that should come for that person, not what I want to hear, what they want to hear? That's and Naylor Locken taught me that.
0: Well, Jerry, you are you're ninety, just turned ninety recently, and yeah, uh, thanks for yeah, reminding well, me. Well, you it. know, <laughs> um, you don't seem to be interested in retirement of any kind. You just published a new book. Uh, about your teacher
1: he was not at Michigan he was a private teacher
0: oh okay he was in
1: New York City it'll tell it'll tell you about him if you buy the book
0: oh okay <laughs> all right <laughs> what what's still on your list to do like what do you what do you want to do that you haven't had a chance to do yet well video games
1: no <laughs> I hate I hate video games I hate I hate things with the human element we are humans you know we're not machines and we're not you know, I don't, that's why I I didn't use digital. I can't stand, you know, that's why I'm copying by hand, because we, we haven't changed. We're still, our hearts are still beating the same rate they beat it 500 years ago. Uh, And I'm very anti-technology, extremely, like on my cell phone, I just talk On it and take pictures. All my kids and grandkids. Oh, you've got to do this. You know, Bush. You get an (laughs) app. You get an app. I don't even know what an app is, you know. And but now we have to have an app or something. But so, what I'd like to do, and I'm working on another book. But even that book, I'm trying to bring people back to get in touch with who they really are. Everybody, because everybody, we're all really the same. And uh, if I can think of a way musically, I find I find music writing very hard. People ask about commissions and and, uh, it's gotten very hard. There's too much. I know too much, I guess, is what the problem is. I can't fool myself anymore by being naive. Um, But I like to teach um, and this book is my way this tibor surly my teacher who was a giant creatively musically he just he was a nutcase in one way he was a maverick and in the (laughs) 1950s and 60s he was fighting the establishment which was all about 12 tones and he was right but he was ostracized but he was all about real music he was you know bartok's best friend and pupil
0: yeah, he finished and, uh, Bartok's viola concerto. That's kind yes, of his main... and piano
1: concerto. Another, yeah, yeah,
0: one of his big uh, claims to fame.
1: Absolutely brilliant. I mean, indescribably gifted. Um, and again, and I, I, I started at the bottom of the heap, and ended up as his surrogate son. We became very close. And uh, my plan is, I'm going to give all our correspondence to the library at Michigan, the Bentley Library. He developed this music theory that's in the book that is what should have happened in 1910. I'm going to lecture you can cut this out. (laughs)
0: I'll get my pen. But
1: there was what Schoenberg and his followers did was basically the wrong course. And what Surly figured out is the direct evolutionary the next evolutionary step of music which was not to abandon harmony but to expand harmony and and you can see I mean it is absolutely brilliant and it opens up a creative palette that is unbelievable it allows anyone to write the any any style they want but as solidly Theoretically correct, musically acoustically, as box theory or the 18th century theory or the 16th century theory, and Mozart, they built on something that was acoustically logical. That's why I mean, that's why you know the, the people's favorite pieces, Beethoven's Fifth or whatever, I mean, whatever these pieces are, because they are artistically logical. They speak. On a on a level or on a plane that triggers this inner response of people, as opposed to, oh, that was loud. Oh, did you hear that gong and that band piece? That was the loudest gong I ever, you know, ridiculous. Um and people are losing touch with that. They're losing touch with their inner selves. Uh and if I if there's anything I can, that's my project, is to try to get first composers to start writing with that focus in mind and hopefully, you know, get people back into the concert hall. It's funny. I am very good friends with the Dean at the school of Mm -hmm. music and I'm constantly badgering him to increase the participation of music education majors, because the people who have had the, in schools, and at Interlochen, but Interlochen is very exclusive now, but the way it used to be, is everyone, and that's, you know, we have some scholarships there, and it's the same thing, as not to have the world's greatest virtuoso, but to have the kids who can barely make it like I was, to come and have that opportunity to be moved by Mozart. It changed me, and to try to change them, to say, we can do this. Mozart did it, you can do it. And um, so I, that's my objective, is, and I told the dean, I said, you've got to, in- Increase the number of teachers and increase so there are more young people having that experience of me. You obviously have played or performed music and it has transformed you. You are unable to hate because no, you can't. I mean, you can maybe hate people who hate, (laughs) but if you have participated in music making, you have an innate respect for your fellow performer. And they can't, a musician, you can't hate. It's impossible because you can't make beauty unless you work together. And, uh, you know, so we've been very, for instance, in the El Sistema, I don't know if you're familiar with that system. Yeah. We've been very heavily involved with that in several places and working on, on increasing that and bugging the dean to increase music educators because if, if we can get more music education in the school, you get more people performing, making music. They don't have to make it well. I was at 17th trombone. But you get, you can make it, and you say, "Hey, I was part of it. That really sounded good, like the Takada Fugue. It brought down the house in the stadium." So every kid out there in that marching band will never forget that experience of hearing the entire stadium roaring because they played, you know, this little short arrangement. So that's my objective: try to get people back to being people. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well let's let's go back in time to the summer of nineteen forty seven and talk to thirteen year old Jerry Billick, the one in the picture. He's writing the interlock and suite. What did he want to be when he grew up? Besides popular with, with the
1: ladies. <laughs> <laughs> um I I didn't know i love trains i have a big thing about trains so i actually thought about you know being a train engineer i was a real you don't understand what a jerk i was i had (laughs) that kind of thing um my father was a very successful doctor and he thought i could make a good doctor but i couldn't stand the sight of blood so that was out
0: yeah
1: (laughs) um no i was i they called me For 13 years, I was in what my parents called the clumsy age. I dropped things. I broke things. I was totally inept. In in first grade, all the kids made doorstops out of little wooden puppies with a little wedge. and My parents came to the school, and they said, which doorstop is yours? I said, the one that's lying down because I nailed the wedge on wrong, and it won't stand up. That was me. (laughs) In the fourth grade, we went to the Bronx Zoo. And then when we got back in the class, and we, the teacher said, we're going to make a freeze of all the animals we saw in the, in the zoo. And I'm going to go down the class list and tell you what animal you're going. to eat. She went down the list and I said, Ms. Jacobson, you didn't call my name. I'm at right at the top of the list. She said, oh, Jerry, you have a special role in this freeze. When Leo Holmsten paints the elephant on the outside and paints near the lines, you're gonna paint all the gray on the inside of his body. <laughs> <laughs> that's what oh. I was. So that's what I was before I went to Interlock. I absolutely, I was the nerd of nerds, totally incompetent, um, and you know, insecure. Um, and Interlock and change it. That's you know, I'll never forget that.
0: Jerry Billick is a composer, arranger, and scholar, and he spoke with us today from his home in Sarasota, Florida. Jerry, thank you so much for joining us today here at Interlochen Public Radio.
1: Okay, I hope you can censor out whatever I said. That's not so good.
0: After we finished recording the interview, Jerry wanted to add one more thing, a message to his fellow Interlochen alumni and to all listeners of this podcast.
1: I would hope they would consider the type of scholarship aid specifically that we're giving, giving scholarships not to the future all-stars who won't have an audience to pay for them anyhow if they don't start supporting kids who are going to become teachers and are going to teach others about the beauty. I would, would like all the listeners and all the alumni to seriously consider helping people who want to spread The joy of the experience of making music and never mind the future uh, superstars. They'll take care of themselves. It's the other ones who need the help. Anyhow, that's my message.
0: Thanks again for listening to Studio A from Interlochen Public Radio. I'm Amanda Sewell. Studio A is a production of Interlochen Public Radio, part of Interlochen Center for the Arts. Amanda Sewell is our music director. Our digital content manager is Emily Duncan Wilson. Learn more at interlockandpublicradio.org.